The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to Chopping It Up. I'm your host, Michael Halen, the Senior Restaurant and Food Service Analyst here at Bloomberg Intelligence. This is our inaugural podcast. I'm, I'm happy to introduce my guests. He's a fellow Jersey boy, a fellow Georgetown Hoya, Gregory Frankfurt. He's the Senior Restaurant Analyst for Guggenheim. What's up, Greg? Yeah, hey, uh, Mike, thanks for having me on. I uh, and Hoya Saxon. <laughs> you got it, man. And uh, unfortunately for our guests, this is audio only because Greg is rocking a mean mustache right now. Uh, he absolutely looks, looked fantastic. He thought it was a video uh, webcast. So my apologies uh, to you, Greg. All right. That's all right. I was uh, I, I, I need to keep some facial hair for my uh, for my girlfriend. I don't think she's ever seen me with a clean shaven face. So uh, that's that's why we kept it on. <laughs> it looks good, man. Looks great. All right, man. So let's let's get into it. Uh, I want to pick your brain on some things. Um, you know, Greg does a, a great job over there at Guggenheim and, and I respect his work. So I'm excited that I could have him on here first. So uh, Fed Chair Powell claims that the U.S. consumers in a good place. Right. But, you know, as you and I know, McDonald's and Wendy's said low income consumers were pulling back in one queue. Uh, so what's your data telling you about uh, second quarter restaurant performance? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, we're, we are at an absolute time of uncertainty. Um, I've been speaking with a lot of uh, public and private restaurants for the last couple of weeks. And I think if you would have asked um, any of these restaurants three or four weeks ago, how is the consumer holding up? They would have said, everything's fine. It's totally fine. Consumer's really strong. I mean, you look, you look back at uh, NAP track numbers for, um, for, for May, we were still running an up six. Um, in April, that was, that was an up seven. So, I mean, th those results are, are, are very healthy, and that's usually the, the middle and higher income guest. Um, and then on the quick service side, you, you've seen, you saw pretty good results in 1Q. I, th I think some of the um, companies have said very slightly at the margin, you've seen a little bit of degradation um, in the lower income con consumer and customer. What I've heard the last couple weeks is a little bit of softness, um, but it but it's hard because it's the, as anyone who's, who's looked at daily or weekly data points before, there's so much noise. And, um, and so a week or two doesn't make a trend, but I think with so much scrutiny on the consumer right now, uh, a lot of companies and investors may be trying to extrapolate a trend. And so um, it's really hard to tell. I thought the consumer's been in a really good spot. I mean, you've looked at how much people have saved and, and, and checking account balances. Um, I mean, they, they basically tripled uh, checking account balances in the U.S. during the pandemic. Um, people, you know, took down revolving credit card balances. That has come back to where it was two years ago. Um, but you could probably have another four, five, six months of runway on that. Um, and so I, I, think, I think things are okay, um, but there are slight, slight cracks at the edges, which, which is understandable given how much inflation is out there. Yeah, and so what... Uh, you know, with, with some of those companies that you've spoken to, some of these management teams, you know, what are some of their concerns around the, the, the consumer? Is it inflation? Is it, 
you know, lapping stimulus from last year? Is it, is it the wealth effect from the implosion we've seen in, in crypto and, and the stock market declines that we've seen? I, I think all of the above. I mean, there's um, the other one that uh, has not gotten talked about, but I was speaking with an executive today about is um, – maybe COVID has resurged a little bit. Maybe that's having a, you know, 50 basis point, 75 basis point impact on, on trends. And, and if there's, I, I bring that up because um, there's just so many different cross currents on the consumer right now. I think it's hard to, uh, hard to parse it out. Um, but inflation has to be a part of it. And um, uh, one thing I was looking at recently is if you look at um the consumer, uh, there's a consumer expenditure survey put out by the Bureau of Labor Statistics, and it shows um, the amount of money that is basically being spent by, I'm pulling the numbers up right here, but the amount of money that's being spent by the lowest decile of consumer incomes on grocery and restaurants and gas, the portion of their total spending, um, the, lo- the lowest decile spends uh, 3.8% of their expenditures on gasoline. The highest decile spends 2.2. So if gas is a 50% and you're spending 1.6 more percent of your of your expenditures on gasoline, there's there's 80 basis points of higher CPI for the lowest income consumer. Same thing with food at home, but to a lesser extent, it's about 10% of their expenses are on groceries. Um, for the highest, it, it's about 5%, and that's up 12%. So you just you just get you know a few different lines. I guess the point I'm trying to make is the stuff that is inflating the most. Shelter, shelter is um, actually in the CPI only up five and a half percent. But um, I think anyone who's gone out there and tried to rent a home recently knows um, that <laughs> that it's <laughs> rents are not of five and a half percent. That's usually twenty six percent of the lowest income's expenditure, and it's eighteen percent for the highest income. And so there's just all these things that are pressuring. Uh, the CPI and inflation the most hit the lowest income consumer the most aggressively. Yeah. And it's, uh, you know, my mentor in the stock business taught me that, you know, think like the other guy. And and part of that included, you know, thinking like middle income consumers or lower income consumers, people in middle America don't live like you or I, uh, Greg, you know, people on the coast live, live very different. Right. And so, um, $50 out of your budget because of increased gasoline prices is, is 50 less dollars you're going to spend, uh, at a restaurant or, or discretionary wise. So, um, you know, that's why we've seen kind of, you know, heard commentary from McDonald's and Wendy's basically saying that, you know, lower end consumers are starting to trade down and, um, uh, you know, just being less bullish, I guess, what they're spending than they have. Right. I remember when Bojangles went public, we were talking to them and, um, and just the, uh, they said they could see it in their daily comps. They could see when people got paid every month. And so um, a lot of Americans live paycheck to paycheck. Um, thankfully, uh, you know, I, I don't think you or I do. Um, and, and so it, it's, it's sometimes as difficult as a restaurant analyst to, to truly get in the minds of, of everyone in this country who, who is in that situation. Um, but that's how a lot of people have to live. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. All right. So now I'm going to give you some props. Don't get a big head on me, but uh, you know, in November we were scratching our heads about 2022 margin assumptions, right? Uh, to your credit uh, estimates have come way down, but uh, are they low enough? Uh, n- no, they're not. Um, and this is where it gets into a little bit of a tricky situation because, um, 
uh, how stocks trade, and I've, I've tried to kind of try to emphasize, emphasize this to people, is there's two ways to have a stock outperform. You either need to have uh, a belief that the earnings of the company will be higher than the market thinks, or that the multiple of the company will be higher than the market thinks. So it's, I've always thought it's a little bit arrogant to have a view that the multiple should be higher. And so it, it, you know, a lot of it comes down to I think numbers will beat or miss. Um, but right now what's embedded in, in stock prices is clearly lower than where the sell side is. Um, the sell side numbers are always a bit, a bit slow to move. Um, you know, I, I was just looking uh, maybe a week ago at, at earnings revisions so far this year. And you know, most companies for 2023 EPS revisions, they're somewhere down between two and 13%, which with most of them being down four, five, six, seven percent, which is not a huge move if you if you think the consumer is going to get really tight, and especially given how much the the cost pressures have moved, um, and a lot of the stocks. Again, this was this was a week or two ago, but we're down you know 15 to 35 percent, and so stocks have gotten cheaper. Restaurant stocks have gotten cheaper, um, but I think very clearly street numbers are generally too high, um, and I think where investors are leaning in right now is where they have confidence that the numbers will be relatively close to where consensus numbers are. Um, and you've, you've clearly seen that in how the stocks have traded. Yeah, for sure. I, I'd agree. And, and uh, your comment about multiples is, is a great one, right? And I think it, it, it explains why in this sector uh, uh, of the stock market, long, short investors tend to do so much better than long only, right? Like it, it can be arrogant to, to claim that, a stock or a certain or some names in the sector deserve a higher multiple. I think it's a lot easier case to say XYZ company should have a superior multiple to ABC for all of these reasons, right? Yeah, completely, completely. And um, I'd love I'd love to talk through some of the some of how much things have changed on the expense side from the beginning of this year because. When companies were guiding, and you know, even on fourth quarter earnings calls that would have been end of January, early February, a lot of companies were were saying, "Look, the labor situation's tight. We're maybe paying seven, eight, nine percent wage inflation uh, year over year this year, expecting that for this year." Um, but the commodity situation has gotten a little bit worse, but we're expecting five or six percent commodity inflation. Now those numbers are thirteen to seventeen percent on the commodity side, ten to twelve percent on the food side, and if you're a restaurant. You just can't really price that through. And the margins have been down. Yeah. And actually, uh, yeah, I mean, we've seen unprecedented, you know, uh, menu pricing, um, you know, and, and last time we saw this uh, into a recession, you know, during the great financial crisis, it was, it was the pizza makers, right? It was Domino's and Papa John's raised their prices aggressively into a recession. And even though pizza remains one of the cheapest ways to feed a family, uh, it really hurt transactions for, for both of those chains. Right. So, um, I guess, can you talk a little bit about pricing and, and who's being more conservative, uh, you know, in, in your covered universe and, and then also maybe a little bit about who you think can outperform during the recession. Yeah, for sure. And, um, the one point I'd make on pricing is it's very difficult right now. If, if you're, Chili's or Applebee's or Olive Garden, I'm just using those as examples, figuring out how much your guest is paying is pretty easy. Four customers come into the restaurant and you take the amount they paid and divide it by four and that's your average check. But if you're McDonald's or Taco Bell or Wendy's and you have a car come through the drive-thru, 
you don't know if that's one person or two per, two people or you know someone's taking it home to feed a family of six. And so trying to parse out average checks, particularly for quick service right now, is very difficult. But um, in terms of base level menu pricing, in the fourth quarter, as you exited the year, most companies were taking four, five, six percent pricing. And I think McDonald's was probably the quickest um, to get high pricing. I guess Ch- Ch- uh, Chipotle would be another example. But McDonald's and Chipotle were probably the two that were most aggressive quickly about getting pricing into the business. And you saw that in margins in, in the first quarter where McDonald's, and, and again, I know some of it uh, is dependent on traffic, but um, McDonald's margins, I think, were down 4 or 5%, whereas a lot of their competitors were down 6 7 8% um, because their pricing was, you know, 5 6 7 and it was a couple points below McDonald's. I think you get through the rest of this year, you're going to see 8 to 10% pricing across the board year over year for most of these companies. Um, Chipotle's obviously been higher with, with around 13 um, and generally what I've heard is very little, uh, consumer pushback and, and these companies have to take more pricing. They have to, because of the cost pressure. Yeah. And you know, the franchisees are, are, are going to do it, you know, until they start, start really feeling that pushback. Um, you know, it, it was interesting though, on the first quarter calls, man, I feel like the equity capital markets guys were in the ears of all of these CEOs. Cause they're all pointing out how, you know, there's a couple hundred basis points difference between food at home and food, uh, food at home versus food away from home. And right. And they're saying, well, food at home is, is inflation is worse. So that's good for us. And, and I get it, but not really, because it's still cheaper to, to buy the food at the grocery store and cook it yourself. Anyway, slice it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I've always thought of, of it's, it's a great question. And I've always thought of what, what restaurants really provide is they provide people um, let's say you're a restaurant, you're going to have a, a hundred, uh, customers come through your restaurant at, at, at a given evening. I'm just making up the number. Um, those customers could all go home and spend an hour cooking, or you could have, you know, six, seven, uh, cooks in the back of the kitchen, spend two hours cooking. And so it's a huge labor savings, uh, tool in the United States is, uh, the restaurant industry. That's kind of the value prop that, that we provide is we centralize pretty individualized cooking. We've, we've had huge labor savings over the last really 75 years from the, the rise of restaurants. Um, but um, one of the things that you've seen is you've seen more uh, faster wage growth at the lower income uh, uh, worker. And that's usually the restaurant worker. And so the challenge for restaurants right now, I think more so even than the commodity standpoint, is the fact that broad wages drive your revenue and lower income wages drive your expenses, and lower income wages are rising faster, and so there's margin compression. And it's honestly a bad thing for the the economy and the population, but it is a challenge for restaurants right now on the margin front. For sure. All right. So, who's your uh, what's your favorite name right now, and why? I'm continuing to lean into McDonald's and Yum, and uh, this goes back to my comment earlier of where do I see pretty high visibility into hitting uh, consensus earnings numbers. Um, and you, know, you look this year, McDonald's 2023 EPS is down 2%. You'll remember that obviously, uh, given the Russia situation, that, that would make up the majority of that mm-hmm. change is just, just losing that. Yeah. Um, Yum is down 2% as well. Similar situation with Russia. So really numbers have not moved a whole bunch, but you have 
Um, some of the, the full service names um, where numbers are, you know, down 10, 15 percent and may, and may still move lower, there's a lot more uncertainty. When you're in the business of collecting revenue and paying out food and paying out labor with a company-operated model, um, there's just more risk to numbers right now versus the franchise model, which is generally more um, uh, what McDonald's or Yum or Jack or Wendy's are, are employing, um, which your earnings are a little more insulated. I think it's worth getting into the franchisees as well because if you're a franchisor, you're not completely insulated to cost pressures. Your franchisees, if they're feeling it, um, at the end, that will, that will cause slower unit growth at some point yeah. down the line. And the, the, the biggest risk, I think, to McDonald's, Yum, Wendy's, Jack in the Box, QSR, Domino's is if your franchisee in 2021, when margins were up 300 basis points, if they kept leverage at six times and put on a whole bunch of debt. And there were a lot of franchisee to franchisee transactions at that point in time. Banks had been lending in a little more aggressively into the limited service side. So the concern I would have is that you may have some challenges on the bank on the bank lending side to franchisees in this space. That that's the that's the spot to watch. Yeah, yeah, I I'd agree. You know, Wall Street loves their net unit growth, man. That's for sure. You know, and I I'd, I'd, I'd add to something to that too, man. I think scale matters, right? Like McDonald's can put items on their value menu for a dollar or three dollars that you know Jack in the Box and Wendy's just just can't match, right? Well, man, McDonald's has done a great job. I mean, obviously, they got a little bit um, uh, tripped up. If you go back to kind of 2012 to sort of 2015 range, comps in the U.S. went negative. Um, and then they, and then obviously with the lunch ball, they breakfast starts, uh, spark a turnaround with business. They, they, if you drive around the U.S. and you go look at the assets that McDonald's has put in the ground the last three, four, five years of the experience of the future, and compare it to some of the other brands, um, their stores look better. And, and yeah. it's just a more enjoyable experience. The, the sales volumes are $3 million. A lot of their peers are um, $1.8 to $2 million. And so the franchisees are making $150,000 to $200,000 a year more in cash flow from some of their peers. That's a great position to be in when your prices are, are even more reasonable than your peers. Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, management done, management's done a hell of a job over there. Um, you know, I guess let's talk about Jack in the Box a little bit, man. It's a name we've talked about a little bit. You know, it it's there's a lot of things going on right now, right? I think it's kind of a messy yeah. story. I think it's a story where a lot of people lost money on it in the past or underperformed to being invested in the past. So I think it's it may be a hard sell. Um but there's definitely some things that are interesting going on, right? The acquisition, potential sale, lease back. Why don't you talk to us a little bit about Jack in the Box? Yeah, no, it's it's um, uh, Jack in the Box is it's it's got a new management team. Um, Darren Harris was uh, came on as a CEO a couple years ago, um, and he's he's made a few changes. Obviously, they sold Cadoba a few years ago to Apollo. Um, just recently closed on the acquisition of Del Taco. And I think some out there go, all right, you're swapping one Mexican chain for another Mexican chain. What are you doing? Um, but I think they're completely different stories. And I say that because, I, um, and not to criticize Cadoba, but Cadoba really tried to be a Chipotle national competitor. Um, you know, they, they rushed into a lot of markets and generally got to a little bit low, uh, lesser scale than Chipotle. And so they're very stretched 
um, unit base. They were, in, I think, it was in forty-eight states. Their their um, uh, their portfolio, whereas uh, Del Taco is much more concentrated into. I think it's thirteen to fifteen states out west. Um, very similar states to where Jack's unit presence is. Um, and so I, I actually think the acquisition from that perspective makes some sense. Um, I think the criticism that investors have for this is that increasing your company operated exposure um, and, and that just creates more earnings volatility, which is, which is fair. Um, but, but, but the Jack management team, I think, has done a pretty good job of leaning into, you, you just said it yourself, I think, two questions ago, uh, Wall Street loves the unit growth. Um, they've been signing up a ton of development agreements. Um, the goal is to get the 4% unit growth in the next couple of years uh, from zero today. I don't think Wall Street expects really any acceleration. And so even if they start, you know, getting units in the ground and show a path to one and a half, two, two, two and a half percent unit growth sometime in the next two to three years, that would be a very, very positive sign for the stock. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's very, it's very cheap. Um, Cheap isn't necessarily working in this market, yeah. um, but it's. Uh, I, th- I think the the management team is doing the right things on trying to accelerate store growth. Yeah, and if you know, if you think the stock is cheap, they're gonna have. They should have a lot of cash to, you know, between the refranchising and the sale leaseback to buy back cheap stock. So, as a former equity trader, uh, you know that always yeah. gets the antennas up. You know. Um, yeah, and if, if they if they think the stock's cheap, I think they'll lean into repurchases. To your point, sorry, I cut you off. No, no, it's all good, man. Um, all right, so let's get into a couple more of your names before we finish up here. What's it going to take for uh, Burger King to turn its U.S. business around? Yeah, Burger King's an interesting one because um, the volumes of their stores are kind of more in the one point four to one point five million dollar range. We talked earlier about McDonald's up at three, and so the franchisee cash flows are not as healthy as at a Wendy's or a McDonald's. Um, and the other big challenge they have is that um, I think because of that, franchisees have not put the capital into the in, back into the brands, into the assets in the way that a McDonald's has in the last couple of years. Um, you know, they, they've got a new uh, brand management in Tom Curtis, who's a former Domino's executive. Um, he's looking at things a lot, a lot differently. A lot of what he's focused early on so far has been on the operational side of things. Um, you know, they've done several things the last couple of years. They, they've started hand-breading their chicken, um, which initially drove sales a bit, but from, from every indication um, is, is a little bit too complicated and adding too much labor versus the benefit that they're seeing on the sales side. Um, and so he, he's, he's going through and he's changing a few things. I, I expect that to um, kind of shift back towards uh, you know, non-hand-breaded chicken at some point in the next few months. Um, you know, they've taken the Whopper back out of some of the value platforms and they're trying to premium, premium is eyes it, I don't know if that's a word, but premiumize it uh, again. And so I think he's doing the right things on the, on the operational side. But you look at, uh, they have a public franchisee, Carol's, uh, ticker T-A-S-P, um, and the stock is down massively over the last 12 months. Because of this margin pressure on the business, because of this margin pressure on the industry, um, and when you're a little bit lower on the totem pole on AUVs, your franchisees feel it more aggressively. Um, the company has a lot of cash. Tim Hortons has been generally performing, you know, okay. Um, and I think they're going to make some reinvestments into the business. We expect a big advertising fund investment sometime in the next three months. 
Um, it could be a couple hundred million dollars. Um, but I think at some point, they probably have to make an invest, a co-investment with the franchisees on the assets um, on re-imaging the stores. Um, and so we'll see how this plays out. But um, I have a neutral on the stock just because I think you need some more certainty on these things before you can, can get involved. Yeah. Um, but that, that's where our heads, are, our heads are at. Yeah, the asset base is definitely dated. And you know, to your point, money flows to where it's treated best. And with so many multi you, yeah, multi-concept, multi-chain operators out there, they're going to invest in the brands that are knocking the cover off the ball before they're going to invest in somebody like Burger King who's been been struggling, you know, for a while here, especially since Wendy's launched for breakfast. Yeah, and I, th- I think that's where if Restaurant Brands International kind of uh, ponies up some money, I think um, that will convince the franchisees to invest alongside of them. And that probably is the catalyst that you need to see uh, a turnaround there. For sure. All right. And since we mentioned Wendy's, let's uh, finish up with Wendy's, man. What's the, what are the odds trying uh, pulls a trigger and acquires the company? I don't think it's high. I think it's low. Um, you know, I think if you're trying, and, and I understand this, this sentiment, you've, you've done a pretty good job the last few years on the business. Um, sales per restaurant are up uh, low to mid double digits. Um, your earnings are up substantially. And the stock has gone from, you know, 20, 21, $22 a share. It hit 16 before they filed their, um, their, I think it was a 13 D, um, saying that they, that they were looking at it. Um, it, it's a business that's been run well. They've, they've got sort of three levers of how they're trying to accelerate their growth. The first one is they're trying to accelerate international unit expansion. Um, the second is by pushing to breakfast the last couple of years. And the third is by pushing to Ghost Kitchens partner with Reef Kitchens. Um, I think the one that has the greatest chance of actually structurally changing the algorithm of the business is if international really works. However, there's nothing that's really gone poorly. This, this is a business that's performing pretty well. Um, and the market, for a few reasons, I think one uh, has punished them for a few reasons. I think one is the company has set their um, expectations always with a little bit of a bullish outlook. Um, and so I think it gets back to the question of maybe there's a little bit more risk to the numbers than there is at McDonald's or Yum. Um, I think that's one part of it. And the other part of it is, is a couple of these drivers, Breakfast and Reef, have had a little bit of a hiccups recently. But uh, the stock is sort of un, un, ridiculously cheap, and I think that's what Tryon was trying to highlight and emphasize with their, um, with their release. And um, But I don't, I don't think – it's something that will necessarily close or happen um, as long as the market kind of uh, uh, trades the stock a little bit more favorably than it was when it was down at, you know, 15, $16 a share. Yeah. That's interesting. Cause to your point, you know, uh, Todd Pentagora and the team there has, has done a nice job, right? So I don't, I don't see really um, too many areas of, of improvement uh, for Tryon. So I, I don't know if it makes an attractive takeover candidate. But the one thing I, I think that I'd point out is franchise margins are a lot lower there uh, than they are at a lot of their competitors. you have any insight into to that? The, fr- the franchisee margins? The franchise margins the fr- so franchise. On, on the corporate side. Yeah. So, so they're, they're earning yeah. lower margins on that franchise business than most of their competitors. Yeah. It's, it's so hard to parse out some of the franchise margin components. Um, Wendy's is involved a bit more in the real estate than some of its peers. And obviously there, there's, there's a few different ways if you're a franchisor to make money. 
You can make money on a royalty stream, which is generally four to five percent of sales, and carries with it a very high margin, often 90, 95 percent. Um, uh, real estate, which can be six to 10 percent of sales, will carry with it a 30 or 40 percent margin. Um, and then there's the advertising fund, which if you're flowing it through your P&L, can be four or five percent of sales, but at zero percent margin. Yeah. Um, and, so, and then there's technology fees, which will have varying degrees of margins. Um, but so it's a little bit hard to, to stack up the, the franchise margins. Um, you know, I think one of the things that uh, is a part of the catalyst and why the stock has always looked a little ch- uh, cheap on EVD, but not ah, expensive on PE, is the fact that they flow 30 to $40 uh, million more of DNA through their income statement than they run in, in CapEx. Um, and so that should come down over time and help the EPS growth. Um, and make the stock look a little more attractive on a PE basis. But even here, it's pretty reasonably priced. All right, good stuff, man. Well, listen, we're running up on time. So uh, I appreciate you. Thanks for coming on. Um, you know, I learned a few things. Hopefully uh, hopefully our, our audience uh, picks up a few tidbits as well, man. But uh, thanks, for, thanks for coming on, and uh, I look forward to, to having you on again. Mike, uh, thanks and congrats on your recent award. I, uh, I I respect what you do in the industry, and you're 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 very good. Um, you're a very good analyst and and very on top of your uh, relationships and trends. So thanks for the time. Thanks, Greg. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum, powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar, and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.